0: Testing, testing, testing. One, two, three. Here I am. (laughs) Oh, you mad? You mad? You
1: mad, impulsive fool? Darn. So ghostly, (laughs) so beautiful, haunting. Over and over and over. Yum. It's like nothing in the world.
2: Clogging. Aspects of (laughs) dandiacal decadence. Slander.
1: I'd do anything to get it back. (laughs) Perform a world. Yum. Perform a world.
3: Crayolas. Totally, totally, totally thrilled. Let's just do
1: it. Yes, let's just do it, like Steve Fagan says. Hey, it's me again, Andy Moore, back with episode number two of Andy's Treasure Trove, San Francisco. In today's episode, come along with me on a media preview tour of the recently opened Contemporary Jewish Museum in the South of Market, or Soma District, in San Francisco. And spend time with its architect, Daniel Liebeskind, museum president, Rosalind Swig, director, Connie Wolf, and others. And talk to Liam Passmore about San Francisco's own literary festival, Litquake, coming to San Francisco next month in October. Then, because you liked them so much last week, we'll hear another tune from the Ernest Bloch bell ringers to close out the episode. Now, the Contemporary Jewish Museum has been in San Francisco since 1984, almost 25 years. For over 20 years, it was housed in the Jewish Community Federation building in downtown San Francisco by the Embarcadero. And the original Jesse Street power substation was constructed in 1881 and in 1906 uh, remodeled by architect Willis Polk in a classical revival style with a towering arched doorway and cherubs and garlands, But now let's hear from some of the experts as they describe the new museum just before the grand opening earlier this summer.
0: Good morning. morning. I'm Rosalind Swig, and I have the privilege of being the chair of the board of the Contemporary Jewish Museum. And I just want to uh, tell you how excited we are that you were able to come today and to enjoy this week of festivities that will uh, culminate in the public opening on June the 8th. Now I'd edu- like to introduce uh, our director and CEO, Connie Wolf.
2: Thanks, Nancy. Um, Welcome, this is my first time standing and speaking in this room, so it's really exciting. And I know that you're in for a treat today as you tour the building. Today, you're gonna see a lot. We have not only a beautiful building to introduce, but fantastic exhibitions. We have with us four of the artists who premiered their new installations for us. And I just want them, the four of them, they're sitting together. I would love for them to stand. We have Meryl Leiterman Euclides, Kay Rosen, Alan Berliner, and Ben Rubin. So just a lot of them. Daniel.
3: Thank you. It's such a thrill to be here and uh, to have you share the building uh, when it is opening. Uh, this building is not a regular building. It's a building in a great city, San Francisco. It's in the center of one of the most vital urban areas in the world. And to create a building that really speaks to the life of San Francisco, to the life of the contemporary Jewish community, to the traditions within this substation, which was really never meant to, to have people, but batteries, and to transform the energy that was once physical into the energy of creative, the creative world, of the mind, of the arts, of the imagination. That was really the challenge uh, to create this building. And this building is based on very ancient uh, traditions. Uh, I based it on L'chaim, to life. Uh, it is the most eternal and positive idea that Jewish people have contributed to the world. Uh, And it it is really implied and implicated in all the spaces of this building, which we can uh, later show you. But in fact, the building has diverse uh, places. Uh, It responds to the fantastic programs that are part of this museum. The exhibition spaces, the public spaces, galleries, uh, uh, places for installations, for meditation, for education. So again, it's been really a great honor, a lot of fun to work on this building, uh, to create something that I think will be vibrant, and that will speak of the Jewish contemporary contribution to the world, will bring people together to this wonderful area of San Francisco. And I think it will be a museum that will not only contribute locally, but it will have a resonance in the world because of its creative idea, bringing together history and the new, bringing the old and the new together. And you will experience it in the spaces of this building and in every uh, angle that you look at. So thank you so much.
2: This is the power station that we were all talking about, Danielle was talking about, inside. Um, when we got the building, it was in very bad disrepair, and it's an unreinforced was an unreinforced masonry building, so there was a lot of work that went into making this building stable again. And there's a parking garage underneath here, four stories of parking below us. All the terracotta here you see is original. Uh, none of it was removed. There was a lot of patching and repair that had to happen because it had been cracked or damaged during years of neglect. A lot of the windows were broken out, so all the grill work is original, but the glass, of course, is brand new. Uh, you can see there's that vertical line to the right over here. That's where the, uh, there was an addition being built onto the power station in 1905. Part of it burned down and then the rest of it fell down during the earthquake. And so, from that point on, that was the new addition that was built after 1907, and then the façade was reconditioned at that point. If you come over to this end, you'll see where the Het and the yurt have come together and uh, creates this great view up through the museum. And there's one of the historic trusses that uh, is reappearing to the north side again. So you see that's the envelope of the power station, And then the het, this long soffit above us, is part of the het form. And then the cube is to the right. They didn't really want to put up any other walls in this space to display art conventionally. So it will be uh, interesting to see how this is used over the years.
4: As I think you've heard a couple times today, Hebrew letters have a numerical equivalent. And the het and the yud have an equivalent of 18, which means life. It's a very happy number. As if that wasn't enough. This room has 36 windows. 18 and 18 is double high. It's kind of a double blessing, um, and uh, so this, you come in this room. It just it feels like a blessing with the light and the space and everything. Um, there's another kind of mystical meaning with 36, which is in, in the, the Jewish mystical tradition. There are uh, 36 holy people that exist in the world at all times, and if those people would not exist, the world would would cease to exist. Those are the people that are anonymous that tzaddikim, these holy, holy men, holy people. Um, and so there's something uh, about that, about these, I don't know if it's, you can go anywhere you want with that. These you know these people are half celestial, or the 36, uh, um, these people who keep the world up are also people that contribute to the community or to the museum, there's a range of interpretations. But everywhere you go in the building and you look at these issues of letters and numbers, um, you'll find something in the tradition that, that the architect drew on in some way.
5: You're in the Koshland Gallery. This is about seven thousand square feet. It's our largest exhibition space. There were questions earlier of Danielle Libeskin about uh, how you know easy the spaces are to use. Having spent the last year designing exhibitions for this space and curating the show with my colleagues, I can assure you these are wonderful spaces to work in. It's a big open volume that we've been able to design temporary exhibition walls that work for this show and for seven contemporary commissions from artists who had all kinds of specific requirements. There are a couple of angled walls in here and the artists were able to really take advantage of those interesting corners where unusual things are happening. And you will see that when you walk through the show. This is our inaugural show called In the Beginning, Artists Respond to Genesis. And we are, what we are beginning with is this Jewish practice, this tradition that goes back some 2,500 years of taking biblical text. In this case, the story of Genesis chapter 1, the beginning of the Torah, the Hebrew Bible. And, uh, and there's this tradition of looking at the text and looking for its meanings, interpreting the text, and writing commentary around the text and then commentary on the commentary. And it's a building tradition that continues. At the back, at the middle of the show, you will actually see several contemporary Bibles where this kind of commentary continues. Uh, We decided to invite seven contemporary artists, many different backgrounds, people who work in all different kinds of media to read the first chapter of Genesis, the story of the six days of creation, and to respond with new artworks, and to respond to this new building. And they have done it in extraordinary, strange, miraculous, insightful kinds of ways. Five of the artists are here today, and you'll have the opportunity to speak with them individually if you'd like and we actually met with the artists in New York at the Jewish Theological Seminary with a group of biblical scholars and we had a study session for a day and heard all these different viewpoints from the scholars on the text and then the artists went off and developed their projects further and you will see the results of what they've done. We're showing the new works in dialogue with about 30 historical works showing how through the ages, artists have depicted the theme of creation. And this ranges from Christian and Hebrew manuscripts beginning in the 13th century, all the way through video pieces that were created a couple years ago. We've been very fortunate in getting loans from museums and libraries around the country, which is a very difficult thing when you're a new institution and you don't even have a finished building yet. There's was a real show of support and confidence from our colleagues around the country. We have works from the National uh, Gallery, the Library of Congress, the New York Public Library, Los Angeles County Museum of Art, the Fine Arts Museums of San Francisco, the University of California, the California State Library, et cetera, et cetera. And it really is this amazing kind of dialogue between the old and the new as these artists, in effect, are creating commentary on this text for the 21st century. Uh, the final piece of the show, we've worked with a wonderful <laughs> local filmmaker, Pam Rourke-Levy, uh, on a video called Genesis Snail where she's interviewed 15 scientists, theologians, rabbis, uh, priests, etc., as well as artists in different disciplines besides the visual arts, asking all of them to respond to Genesis, talk about the text, talk about this kind of uh, uh, intersection between science and religion. And uh, I will just point out that as you enter here, These are all 20th century works. We have a suite by Jacob Lawrence over here on the right, uh, a Barnett Newman painting down at the far end. There's in the middle, there's a side gallery with real treasures that are in very dim lighting because they're um, so fragile. Uh, That's where the manuscripts are. And then in the side galleries are the contemporary works and the video is in the back. I'll be around to answer any questions. Our assistant curator, Doris Salman, who co-curated the show, will be around. And five of the artists are here to talk about their works with you.
1: Then I spoke to Trenton Doyle Hancock, one of the five artists present at this event, whose piece "Flowerbed 2, A Prelude to Damnation, took up an entire room. And look at my website for some photographs, but um, really you had to be there in person to experience the full majesty of it. Thank Are you, you Trenton? Yes. I'm Andy Moore. Hi. Nice oh, what a wonderful room. Hey. Yeah. Thank you. Well,
6: the title of this piece is called "In the Beginning There Was the End, and the End There Was the Beginning," and for my section of the of the show, I thought I would take an excerpt from my own mythology, where there's these characters called mounds, which I use in my work a lot, which represent the earth and they represent um, abundance and life and At one moment in time, many of these mounds were massacred um, and destroyed and only a few were left. And they were killed by their half-brothers, these ape people um, called um, Chromalina and Bruthaskam. And uh, Chromalina and Bruthaskam were uh, banished to the lower realm for this act that they did and they had to procreate down there and create a new race of creatures called vegans. And um, so this show, or my section of the show, is about um, out of this birth came a new birth, or the end of these characters created the beginning of other characters. So it's like... This cycle that happens within my, my mythology quite a bit. So it's a never-ending cycle. It's a never-ending
1: cycle. So exactly. we're in a room that is is very densely illustrated. Very That's densely
6: and and illustrated, and it cycles itself over and over again. Um, so I, I thought the wallpaper was um, a perfect way to talk about um, both regeneration. And then cycling back, something cycling back on itself and um, proliferating itself. But when you look at the content, you see that it's actually the life being taken out of something. So um, I thought that sort of uh, contrast would be
1: appropriate for the show. Yeah, I, I, uh, I'm glad to hear that you didn't paint this all by hand. I'm glad to hear that <laughs> it is indeed wallpaper. Yeah, I wouldn't be here if I had to do that. <laughs> Well, it's really wonderful, and the drawings are so different, and yet, I mean, aesthetically, they're, are they pencil or um, pen and ink? Or uh, ink on paper. Ink on paper. Um, and the and the wallpaper is more like... has a, a pop art sense of... or op art.
6: Yeah, there's definitely uh, more of a pop graphic sensibility to the paper um, in terms of the color, which is definitely... Um, taken right out of 70's psychedelia um, and it's actually made it's black light color black, black light ink so um, in optimal conditions it would be glowing and be crazy right now. But um, I see no black lights in this room. Yeah, what, what, what happened? Um, well I think it's an issue of getting it dark enough in here for, for it to actually function uh-huh. but um, and when I created the the work I created it on different levels like for it to work under natural, just regular light as a graphic motif and then also does this whole other
1: thing under a different light. Now I'm disappointed. (laughs) And I think that maybe, you know, for some some special event during the run of the exhibit, they should bring in black lights.
6: I think that would be a great idea. (laughs) I heard that there's these black light flashlights that people can just tote around. Yeah, that's a good idea. A great way to...
1: I don't know, reveal the exhibition in a new way. Well, as the artist, do you have much power to, you know, influence a decision like that from the institution? Um, Well, I can suggest it, but at the same time, there's so
6: many channels that decisions have to go through before they become instituted, so we'll we'll see. I'll suggest it. Thanks for talking to me. Hey, my pleasure. I really can't wait for Andy's Treasure Trove. Well, you'll just have to. Okay. But not long. Okay.
7: (laughs) My name is Alan Berliner, and uh, I'm lucky enough to have been invited to, to create this installation called Playing God for the Contemporary Jewish Museum in their inaugural uh, installation here at the old now-become-new power station in San Francisco. Uh, the exhibition here is called In the Beginning, Artists Respond to Genesis.
1: We're standing in front of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Nothing's arbitrary. Oh, I'm sure. Yes. Seven flat-screen video displays. That's correct. And about, oh, I don't know, 15 feet in front of that, right in front of us is a podium with two big buttons. One is glowing bright green, and the other, if someone touched it, it would glow bright red. That's right. And you explained it as kind of a slot machine in a way, but why don't you tell tell us about the example?
7: Well, the the interface, the the nature of the game is that um, um, running behind every monitor, through every monitor is a better way of saying it, is the entire text of Genesis covering the first seven days of creation. All 837 words is running behind each monitor. And when I press the green button... Mm -hmm. When you press the green button, it makes, it creates a kind of rapid montage of those words. You know their words. Um, you can't read them a little fast, but eventually you get the hang of it. When you click the red button on the right, it actually then, in slot machine style and rhythm, makes the first monitor freeze on a word, then the second, then the third, then the fourth, then the fifth, then the sixth, and then the seventh.
1: Now, in this case, you, the way, the way it lined up is that the, the following sentence was, or phrase was created. Creation is now declared a finished story. That's correct.
7: But obviously, I mined the text very deeply and created these phrases, um, some of which are prophetic, some of which are questions that God has for us, some of which are questions that we have for God. Um, there are bits of wisdom in there, uh, proverbial things. This is actually... Um, this one, I like to think tweaks the whole uh, evolution and um, intelligent design question. So there are things. So there are a lot of contemporary issues that um, that are also evoked by the um, the nature of these uh, phrases. I, I all, as I was making them, I called them biblical haikus. Uh-huh. You know? And um, it was part of the joy of making the work was coming up with them and seeing how I what I could really actually you know crunch out of. These eight hundred and thirty-seven words, all of which are
1: represented here. I was going to ask if you ended up using all the words. Absolutely. I mean, every word. Every word. And how, how, how many phrases? Well, I'm are there?
7: I'm not so prepared to say how many there are, okay. especially at the beginning. Except to say that there are a lot of them, that you'd have to spend a lot of time here before you before you saw a repetition, um, or you could even perceive. I mean, I think a lot of what this is about at a theological level is scale you know like the universe that we live in um, is it ordered is it random do we have agency and choice and will
1: is it and live is it memory?
7: well yeah you know, all of those things and it has to do with scale I mean there's stuff going on that we, we're not equipped with our eyes ears no, with our senses to perceive and um, so it is in making this work that I try to create a scale that's not readily perceivable In terms of what's going on, um, in terms of this random versus ordered, your experience of randomness is is such because in playing the the game is because I've created an order that allows that, you know. Right. And so. Yeah, if it was random, it would not. Well, if it was truly random, then you'd have the 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 is is and and. (laughs) So I've eliminated that possibility. Right. And I've crunched the text and mined the text and and. Tried to squeeze every possible poetic and um, evocation and provocative meanings and significances, insignificances as I can, as I could, and um, they're really quite, you know, all over the place, actually.
1: Well, I want to push the button before. again. Now the words are all spinning. You go ahead and push the red one, and they're beginning to stop from the left to the right, revealing the phrase. Now, I love this one. I like this one a lot, too.
7: This, to me, is about a lot of things. Why don't you read it? Okay. Every dry mm-hmm. spirit creeps to holy water. I think it's about religion. It's a statement about religion. I even think there's an implied thing here about alcoholism. Ah, uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah uh, that's I just wonder, a very... evocative wonder and, and the relationship old... between the two. <laughs> but nonetheless, um, I think this is about... The possibilities that religion offers for people who
1: need such things. Um, I wanted to ask you maybe what one of one or two of the most unusual words or hard to use words you found or old fashioned words. Well, humankind
7: is a hard word to use. Mm. You know, void is an interesting word to use. I, I one time I used it a lot, and then I s- tried to um, brought it down. It's funny the text. Sometimes it was very plastic, like I could really you know find. Things and idioms and expressions, and you know. Ha- and other days it was very dense and very close to me. Couldn't predict. Couldn't predict.
1: And do you think that had to do with the words that you were looking at that day, or your, or the face of the moon, or your what you had for lunch, or what? Yeah,
7: you know, one never knows. <laughs> but I think every day was uh, a different. You know, you're reading a text. You're um, exploring a text. Perhaps the most explored, read, translated, interpreted text in the history of the written word, and that I'm finding things that maybe in my way, because I'm bound by my seven monitors and I'm using it in this way with, I'm crunching things from the text that maybe no one else has seen yet, you know? And that there's something authentic to this process that's albeit aberrant and quite unusual. It's a kind of commentary on the Bible.
1: You know? Well, it's a very dignified piece, even though it's a game, quote-unquote a game. Yeah. It's amazing what what meaning you can evoke from 800 and whatever it was, pieces of the puzzle. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and then the different interpretation from our time and our point of view that can be brought to those words. And yet it's all
7: grounded in the text. I mean, you know, I didn't, it's just there. Whenever the word God comes on screen as part of a phrase, that word then flickers with thunder and lightning and turns into an image. And it's an image of how we, as individuals, collectively, as a society, a cultural forces um, have played God, play God or have played God.
1: Oh my God, the word God came up and now we see a man standing on what looks like a giant threshing machine or some sort of giant mechanical gizmo. This is, um,
7: for me, a reference to the act of creation itself, artists in a generic sense.
1: I'm going to let some of the other people play, too. Sure, okay. Thanks
7: Thanks for talking talking to me. My pleasure.
1: How how is San Francisco treating you? I
7: I love this place. Uh Come on, what's not to love? I agree. (laughs) Well,
1: that was a really interesting uh, piece of artwork by Alan Berliner, and I really enjoyed talking to him. He's a very, very nice guy, very fun. And then I ran into Rosalind Swig again, and we talked about playing God, making art, and some of the headier issues involved in making a museum. Now, I wanted to talk to you about your role in this museum and some of your thoughts about the important role that art plays in our culture Mm -hmm. and the argument that can be made that it's essential to the growth of our culture.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I've I've always felt that um, art is part of the whole and that uh, for for an individual, it makes them complete. And if you take arts and culture away then you just haven't, you're not a totally fulfilled person, nor do you have the opportunity to really embrace something that can be enriching and a learning experience and and sort of an appreciation for other.
1: I think that that's what uh, one of the things that rings truest for me is exposure to the other, exposure mm-hmm. to different things or different ways mm-hmm. of looking at things. Mm-hmm. And museums are sort of... Um, churches, in a way, where you go to hopefully have more than a casual experience, a more profound meditative experience through the artwork.
0: Well, I know that certainly in the last several years, uh, I've listened to architects who have talked about their structures, museum structures particularly, as uh, sanctuaries and as chapels and so on. Whatever, whatever terms that they want to have. But they are, I think museums are a place for access, and I think they're a place for inclusion. People walking in should feel, A, that they're welcome, B, that they're comfortable, and C, that they're going to be able to um, derive some benefit from what they're going to see. It shouldn't be, I don't think it should be proselytizing but I think it should be uh, enriching. And I think those I think those institutions are the most successful and people come back. And, I, think be, I think museums should be a place to come and sit down at a bench or if you have a cafe to go and have a cup of coffee and just be in an environment where people are raising their own awareness to whatever the exhibits are uh, and interacting. And certainly in San Francisco where we have such a diverse community and I think we have a very high respect for other cultures, uh, religious streams, and so on. Um, I think that it, that's a profound, I think that that's a necessity for uh, San Francisco and San Franciscans and I think it's a profound message of what we're trying to share with the rest of the country, that this is a, this is a city that really cares.
1: And so in this particular instance, you decided to um, do more than talk the talk. What was your role in, in helping to create this museum?
0: Well, interestingly enough, uh, my husband and I uh, were part of the initial uh, idea of the museum. It, this museum in 2010 will celebrate 25 years, and it was housed in a smaller, in a building very much, much smaller. And uh, But there was always the... Notion to have a larger space, uh, and but we were we were part of that. There were maybe twenty or thirty others, and so I've always had an interest in it. And then because of our interest in the arts generally, it was something that we felt strongly about. The building that it was housed in is called the Jewish Community Federation Building, which is uh, uh, an umbrella organization for about forty-five. Agencies uh, that are in the city, and so just following along with what I say about the arts and how it's part of the whole. When the idea of uh, having a museum uh, place there was uh, proposed, we were very enthusiastic about that, and uh, and so we, there's been a natural, continued natural interest. My husband served as the president in the uh, late 80s, and. Uh, and then I started my term as a chairman of the board about, this is my fifth year.
1: <laughs> well, it's an exciting and especially exciting year, I'm sure, to be part of this institution.
0: Yeah, it's, it's wonderful. And the idea of having Daniel as the architect uh, is just just amazing, just amazing. And he's, he's profound. I mean, he's got a very deep soul and thinks very, very deeply about uh, Jewish history and what... Jewish values bring to the overall communities, and so all the symbolism is a very natural thing for him. There's nothing forced here. He sees it immediately. And what I have always appreciated about this building, even when it was barely barely had form, you could see how respectful he was of the old facade, the landmark facade, and what he was going to do, so that there was no—the tension was all positive tension. And I loved that from the beginning.
1: I got that impression from his remarks that he yes. yeah. he not only had given a lot of thought to it, but really wanted to. He didn't want to wipe out the old. Exactly. He, he left the cherubs. You know, exactly. <laughs> that, exactly. That, that, that conversation. Exactly.
0: Not that he could have changed those, by the way. You know, that's part of the landmark. Uh, the exterior, we couldn't touch the landmark. They they cleaned it up and they fixed certain things, but couldn't be changed. But he didn't. Uh, he was he wasn't a um, it wasn't an adverse situation. He accepted Willis Polk and the quality of his design and what he produced, and then he did his design. And, and I think you sense that. You walk into the building and you see those original trusses, and you see the, the stark uh, pardes wall, and there's a wonderful relationship between them, and you feel good about that. And I hope I could be as objective as I can. <laughs>
1: well, you probably can't, but that's all right. Um, I, I wanted to explain to our listeners that we've been hearing claps of thunder in the background. Yes have you had a chance to play God yet?
0: I was playing God shortly. <laughs> About 10 minutes ago I was playing God. Oh, okay. It was interesting. It was really interesting. And, and the, uh, the, the, the loud noise came on, the imagery came on, and I had told the artist that I had walked by the exhibit before and it pressed the buttons, but I had never had the imagery come on. So that was sort of a surprise. All I had were the letters that came on.
1: I actually saw somebody jump back when that thunder peel, they, yeah, they jump back it's yeah, kind of startling it, you know. <laughs> well thanks for talking to me
0: i look forward to andy's treasure trove i, I think it's a, a, a wonderful addition and i think you'll have a lot of people looking at it and responding to it
1: thank you so much okay. All right, nice. Nice you. thanks again yeah. thank you see you later
4: hey Andy.
7: Hey liam how's it going fine how are you i'm good i'm here to escort you downstairs
1: to your next um, few
0: interviews oh, i'll,
1: I'll okay. follow that's in your
7: right.
0: wake okay. <laughs>
1: And remind me about over how many days and nights Litquake occurs. Um, nine days,
7: October third through October eleventh, two thousand eight. It's that you know that big arts and culture weekend here in San Francisco. You got um, hardly strictly bluegrass, you have Litquake, and of course the Blue Angels, <laughs> So yeah. the trifecta.
1: Well, this show is about art and culture, and I suppose the Blue Angels are a part of culture in yeah. in a particular way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. usually call the mayor's office and complain. Oh, do you? I've given up the last few years because yeah. it doesn't seem to make a difference. Yeah, it's like complaining about the color blue. <laughs> no, really? I call them blue, the Blue Angels of death, <laughs> oh, and and nice. being you know some sort of a worrywart, I imagine them. Accidentally crashing into the Golden Gate Bridge. and I always have that feeling. Yeah,
3: they're anxiety-provoking. They well, provo-
1: they're, they're loud, anxiety. screaming war machines is what they are. Right. Be sure to check out Litquake this year. And from Screaming War Machines, let's segue to All Things Bright and Beautiful another tune by the Ernest Block bell ringers. And after that, I'm going to be taking off to Santa Cruz, California, where I'll be spending the next two weeks. And I'll be publishing episodes from there, from the public library in Santa Cruz, if I can work out the details. So look for another episode in about a week. And please tell your friends about Andy's Treasure Trove, San Francisco. I appreciate it. Bye for now. It's reserved, Andy Moore and Treasure Trove Productions.